Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We find that it's late at night now as 12 men walk through the normally crowded city streets of Jerusalem. They whisper together, and suddenly their teacher speaks. I am the true vine, he says, and their mumbling is hushed. Somehow they know that the night air is pregnant with suspense. This trip to Jerusalem was not their first, but it had been weird, so much weirder than the last other, the several others before. Their teacher had come into the city with songs of praise from the people. But he had spared no time in criticizing the elite. He had spared no time in upsetting those who lived as hypocrites and abused their power. And then tonight, one of their numbers had run out of their Passover feast, and John was saying that their leader had said this one would betray him. They may have wondered why they weren't hiding. They may have wondered what that even meant. Some may have thought that Judas had stolen money from their meager treasury. But nonetheless, now they walked to the garden where their teacher liked to go, to pray and spend the late night hours talking to the Father, talking to God. Little did they know in less than 24 hours he would be hung upon a cross naked and full of shame. Little did they know in just moments a crowd of religious leaders would meet them in that peaceful garden and arrest him. Little did they know that they would lead him away like a sheep to the slaughter and they, his beloved followers, would scatter. Little did they know that their hearts would faint with fear as their world was turned upside down. They thought they were strong. They thought they were ready for everything and anything. And looking back, surely they saw then what, could have what they couldn't have seen in that moment. He had warned them, they must have thought. He had prepared us for what was coming. How could our hearts have been so hard and foolish? As we jump into the reading this morning, we need to understand the background of the staggering thing that happens in, our, in it. We find ourselves dab smack in the middle of what is commonly called the upper room discourse. But I think that this is a misnomer. For in chapter 13 and 14, we get a description of the Last Supper, or perhaps the First Supper, which we recall again on Monday, Thursday, and whenever we gather together to break bread. And then Jesus starts to teach. And at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, Rise, let us go from here. And we see a transition. It seems Jesus and his disciples then leave and make their way to the garden where he is betrayed in chapter 18. Ultimately, whether they are walking through the city of streets of Jerusalem with purpose towards that garden or still in the upper room talking doesn't matter terribly much as long as we understand that in less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead 
and his disciples will be scared and scattered. And Jesus proclaims, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This past week, a politician was found out to have said a strange remark about farming. He claimed, I could teach anybody to be a farmer. It's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in it, you drip you drip dirt on it, add water, and up comes corn. You may have heard about it and know exactly what I'm talking about. It was simplistic and rather condescending and a perfectly untrue statement. For anyone who has tried to keep a houseplant alive knows <laughs> that plants are terribly fickle, and it takes effort and intentionality. Last week, we talked about the simple act of sowing seeds, and if we live our lives with congruency to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we claim to believe, we will naturally grow, go about our lives sowing seeds, sowing seeds with friends, sowing seeds with neighbors and coworkers and family members. But even that takes work. Even that is not so simple. But we also must remember that it is God who is doing the work of tilling the soil, of assuring that there is a farmer there to water, someone to clear away the dross, someone to prune and to tend to. To farm, to care for plants is not so simple as this politician made it out to be. And to grow in Christ, in one sense, seems tremendously simple, but in another, it is a challenge. This week, when we read the chapter that we have read, we start to get a picture of what it means to be tended to, to be a part of Christ's family. We start to get a picture of the need for community within the church to abide in Christ is therefore not merely to be me and my Bible, which of course is important in our walk, but we need each other. We need each other to be Christ to one another. We need to abide in the vine. The season of Lent we are about to embark on is a season of self-reflection, a season of God, of letting God reveal to us where our hearts have failed and faltered. And it would be tempting to not walk with others through this time of introspection. Yet Christ reminds us that we are bound together, not by our hobbies, not by our interests, not by our demographics, nor by our education levels. No, we are bound together by him. For he is the vine in which we abide, and in which we find life, and in which we produce life and fruit. And what of those branches that he cares for? He tends to them so that they are healthy. The first clause which we, read, we could read in two ways. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit can either be taken away or he lifts up. It is a bit ambiguous, but both are possible. For in vineyards, it is not uncommon to lift up vines so that they are healthier, but it is equally common to discard the unhealthy branches. So regardless, there is a care for the health of the vine 
And God does work of pruning us so that we would be spiritually healthy. Do you all remember last fall or last spring when someone pruned back the rose bushes? Before I came here, I lived at the church and there was a beautiful garden tended by a master gardener. It was really a delight to watch him work. He tended with care and loved each plant. He made beauty in the form of the gardens so that others would enjoy it and delight in what he had tenderly cared for. But had I not seen him cut back the rose bushes when I lived there, I would have panicked when these bushes were cut back, for it seemed so aggressive. But I know now that roses like to be aggressively cut back so that they will flourish in the season to come. And sure enough, this past summer, the roses were yet again big and beautiful and full. It is the same with our hearts. They need constant pruning in order to continue to bear fruit. I've had this conversation with several friends where it seems as though we find ourselves finally free from some overt sin, finally plucked away, and, but then we find something deeper, more dreadful, another sickness in our hearts. As we cut back the bramble and wash away the mire, it is only to discover that there is more that needs careful tending to. It is as though we may no longer be visibly angry when somebody frustrates us. But oh, we find our heart is rife with jealousy. But it is no surprise that as we draw closer to Christ, that the, heart, that the nature of our heart is slowly revealed, that each step we find more dross that must be burned away more dead branches to be pruned off, more brokenness to be healed. This is a part of the process of Lent. This is a part of why Lent can be so hard, because we intentionally ask God to reveal to us where we need to grow and where we need pruning. To be pruned is a hard but good thing. To allow God to explore our heart and be receptive to that which he reveals may bring a momentary pain, but it brings us into health. This is ultimately what our Lenten discipline is all about. Not about self-righteously proving that we can do some mighty spiritual act. Not about proving ourselves to God, but about being brought low so God may rise us up. About allowing God to prune our hearts so that we may bear more and more fruit that we may be remade all the more in his image. Then Christ declares that his disciples have already been made clean because the words that have been spoken to him. My friends, this passage reveals to us the tension between the reality of being made clean when we meet Christ, whenever that was, and are bought, that we are brought into his family. And that very hard reality that we still sin. We still find the mire of sin all over our hearts and minds. When we come to Christ, we are made new. We are called to, be, to remain in him, to abide in him and in his holy word, that that word may do a transforming work in our hearts. We like to complicate things, but these are the simplest instructions 
abide in Christ through knowing his word and by being in fellowship with our brothers and sisters, by breaking his bread and drinking from his cup at his table. To abide in him means that we will bear fruit. And what is this fruit? It is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gladness, and self-control. These fruits, if truly born, make all the difference. Make all the difference in our lives and in the lives of those around us. They bring glory to God and let his light shine before others. This past month, I was talking to somebody about what is, I think, one of my favorite verses. That is Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others, that so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The person I was talking to pointed out that perhaps a better translation or reading might actually be beautiful works. Are good or beautiful works are those works that come from, in, come from us abiding in the vine and in abiding in the Holy Spirit. They are works that come from being, from being in Christ. They are works that are endued with the spiritual fruit of knowing God. But now comes a hard warning. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. First, we are called to abide in Christ. If we are not abiding in him, we will dry up. Our hearts will become hard. As I read this, this past week, I couldn't help but think of those branches that you might find while taking a stroll in the woods, sitting on the forest floor for a week or a month or a year. And if you pick one up, they snap without the slightest of efforts. I know at times when I've wandered from God, at times when I've grown discouraged or sin seems so much more tantalizing than walking with Christ. It's at first fine. At first I was happy and nothing changed. But a week or a month went by and soon my heart became dry. Soon the fruit, the fruit of the spirit started to wither upon the vine and die. Soon I was brittle, dry, and ripe to be cast away. If we do not abide in Christ, if we do not attend to the word daily, if we do not give our lives up to prayer, if we do not join in fellowship with the rest of the vine, soon our hearts will be hard. Soon we will bear no fruit, but the fruit of jealousy, fits of anger, of rivalries, of dissension, of division, of licentiousness, and the things like these. But Christ brings life in a dying world where outside of him is pain and sorrow. But there's a second part to this, second part warning here. As we gather together, we are not playing around. Although it's fun to socialize, this is not a social club. But we are called to something incredibly holy, we are called to a mighty thing. In worshiping, we are called into the presence of the glory of God. And in fellowship, we are called to share in his love for one another. An author once said that as we gather together to worship, we shouldn't be handing out bulletins and hymnals, but crash helmets and life preservers. 
As a body, we enter into the presence of the holy. As a body, we enter into a holy task. And this should give us pause. This should humble us. So let us renew our desire to abide in him. For Christ is our only security. Christ is our only hope in this world. My friends, let us learn to abide in Christ day in and day out, renewing our commitment to grow in him, submitting ourselves and our hearts to his tender care. But now we must clarify something. It is said, if, we ab- if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is one of those poor verses that are so often abused by those in the health and wealth movement. But there's a kicker to this. If we are abiding in Christ, the more spiritually healthy we get, the closer we come to the heart of Christ, the more our prayers shift from, I want this, I want that, to not my will, O Lord, but thou will be done. The more intimately we come to know Christ, the more we dwell in his will being done in our hearts. So if we abide in Christ, we will want more than anything is that the Father's will would be done in our lives. The more we abide in Christ, the more the Lord's prayer becomes our prayer. The more we delight in knowing that the Father's will would be done. And now we come to this beautiful part. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Remember the point I made at the beginning of the sermon? That Christ is knowingly walking to his crucifixion as he teaches these things? That soon the disciples' worlds would be turned upside down? We can easily reduce these verses to empty sentimentality. But Christ is preparing his disciples, his students, his friends for the horrible thing that is about to happen. I want to suggest that perhaps we shouldn't read this as abide here, for I'm not sure we grasp exactly what is being said, but rather we should read it as remain in my love. Christ is saying, you are about to see something awful. You are about to experience the darkest day in human history. You are about to watch me die. Remain in my love. I promise you, my friends, it is going to seem dark. It is going to seem terrible. But remain, remain, remain. For I am going to remain in the Father's love. The crucifixion, as I mentioned, the crucifixion is an act of love. I mentioned this a long time ago. But atheists often, crucify, often criticize the Christian religion for the crucifixion. And they say if Jesus was really God, that he could have just ripped himself off of the cross. To which we respond, yes, of course he could have. 
But because he is God, his love for us kept him upon the cross. The cross is an act of love, and Christ makes that perfectly clear. And what is more amazing, Christ knows he's about to take the cup of the wrath of the Father. He is about to drink the dregs of it. He's about to drink every last ounce of what we deserve. He is going to drink every drop for us. But even in this, he does not doubt the love of the Father. The crucifixion is an act of God's love for humanity. And there we see our invitation into the loving community of the Trinity. In Christ's loving submission to the Father, we are called to abide in the love of Christ. We are called to remain in that love. We are assured, no matter where the paths may bring us, Christ remains with us. Just as Christ has experienced the worst, he can guide us through the worst which we might experience. Just as Christ has experienced the ultimate love, he brings us into that love that our joy may be complete. In a world that hurts, in a broken world where backbiting and nitpicking and cruelty persist so clearly, Christ's love brings us into complete joy heals our broken hearts, and says, Rejoice! Again I say, rejoice! For God's love has redeemed our brokenness, and our joy is complete in him. And then he flat out tells his disciples what is about to happen. He is about to give up his life for them. He is about to give up his life for us, that we might have true life and true joy. And then he says, no longer I call you servants or slaves, but I have called you friends. Think for a moment about those sins that perhaps have dogged you for too long. Think for, think for a moment, if you can remember it, about the time which you came to know Christ or a time which you have wandered from him in how you lived. Think for a moment, about the effects of sin in your heart. Where would you be without Christ? In sin, we are slaves. In sin, we are like a leaf blown by the wind, not by our own will, but by the will of the flesh. Chasing the next high, whether it be a literal high, whether it be filling our desires of lust, whether it be chasing after power, whether it be in consuming gluttonously, whether it be in lust, do not be deceived. To be in sin is to be a slave to your flesh and to your passions. And we are freed from that slavery. We are freed to become servants of the Father. But Christ says something here, says something incredibly beautiful. We are no longer called servants or slaves. We are no longer slaves to sin, nor are we merely servants in the house of God, though that would be enough for me. We are called friends of Christ. We are called friends of God. And this isn't just a friendship like when 
when you're out and your spouse or you see someone that you say hi to and they say, who is that? And you say, well, that's my friend. When we really mean, that's some acquaintance that I know. No, our friendship with Christ is a call to be on intimate terms with him. It is to be known and to know him. We are invited into intimacy with Christ. Can you imagine anything better? Can you imagine anything more beautifully beautiful than being known intimately by the one who created the heavens and the earth? This is what Christ has invited us to, intimate friendship. How good and beautiful uh, is that? And what does Christ ask of us? It is that we obey his commandments. And what are these commandments? At the center of this commandment is that we love one another. At the center of the Christian community is that we live out that love that Christ displayed on the cross. We live out an active obedience to God the Father. We live out an active obedience to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. We live out a self-giving, tender affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is that we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our beautiful work, that we would glorify the Father. Wednesday marks the start of Lent. Again this week, I have provided you with a sheet of reflection for this week. Too often, I sort of stumble into Lent. But by the grace of God, I wanted to be more intentional this, week, this year. Lent is a time of introspection and renewed intimacy with Christ. But let us also remember Christ's commandment that we would love one another. Let us remember, too, what St. Paul had said, that without love, we are nothing but a clanging gong. As we enter into this season of repentance and season of self-reflection, let all that we do be done for the love of God and for our neighbors. As we wrap up this service this morning, I will read from the second long exhortation on page 86 of the Book of Common Prayer. I will announce it again when the time comes. But I would invite and encourage all of you to read along. And then in this coming week, take time to reflect upon the words that are being said. This was more typically used in parishes that do not have regular communion, but it provides a good outline of reflection for the week preceding Lent as well. Let us not miss this good and beautiful opportunity to flee from that slavery of sin and into the loving arms of Christ. Let us rather learn to abide and remain in the love of him. Let us take the opportunity to dwell richly in him and he in us, that all that we do would glorify the Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.